You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. When it comes to sexuality, you know how much I love studies and data, right? I mean, it's kind of like a fetish. Well, OMG Yes asked thousands of people with vaginas what feels best for them. They found the patterns and laid them all out in detail. They brought each technique they discovered to life in videos featuring regular people sharing from experience. Right now, you can get $5 off the newly released Season 2 at omgyes.com sunny. Hi friends, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backward ass ideals we have right here in the United States. This is episode 90 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm Sunny Megatron, my lovely co-host and co-everythinger, Ken Melvoin-Berg, will be back with us next week. So this is a whole episode, American fuckers, like a whole heavy episode. You've been seeing what's going on the last week or two concerning the fight for reproductive rights in the U.S., I'm sure, right? Well, before we roll our guest conversation that's all about this subject, I want to share some of my personal thoughts. Now, I also want to preface what I'm about to say with, hey, I'm not an expert in abortion rights. Yes, I'm an expert at, you know, having a uterus and repeatedly having to fight the government being all up in my business and my body. Um, and I'm also a sexuality educator, but I am not a reproductive justice expert by profession. So if you're listening to this and it inspires you to seek out other information on the subject, or if you're media looking for a quote for an article, don't look to me, look to our guest this week. Bianca Loriano. She is brilliant and she knows the subject inside and out, as you'll hear in our guest conversation. She's who you want to talk to and get more info from, and all of her contact information will be in the show notes at americansexpodcast.com for episode 90. So, like many people, well, actually, no, like most people with uteruses, this past week has me freaking pissed. And when I when I say most, I mean most, no matter what poll you look at, 70 some odd percent, you know, some are 71%, some say 77%, whatever. But those are the percent of people in the US that support upholding Roe versus Wade. So when we recorded this guest conversation this last week, we at the time had only heard the news about Georgia and Ohio, and no governors had signed anything at that point. Since we've got Kentucky, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, you know, they've joined in passing bills that make abortion pretty much illegal for all intents and purposes in most cases. And who knows what other states are going to be added to that in between the time I'm recording this right now and the time this episode airs. So yes, I am absolutely enraged about the details that I'm hearing all about these different bills and laws, you know, how people that abort and, and you know, can serve 99 years or even get the death penalty, that there's no exception in the cases of rape and incest, etc. And of course, you know, all of these heartbeat bills essentially make all abortion pretty much illegal because the odds of a pregnant person discovering they're pregnant and making an appointment, you know, in the right amount of time is slim to none. 
In fact, these bills are so restrictive and so shocking that even some of the big names in conservative media like uh, Tommy Lauren and televangelist Pat Robertson have said they are, quote, too extreme and have gone too far. What the hell is this freaky Friday? The conservatives are all up in arms like I am. We agree. This is weird. Anyway, I see all of you all outraged, too, on social media about these laws. And I'm seeing comments like, you know, how can they give the person a death penalty for seeking out an abortion? That's not pro-life. What the hell? You know, and other comments along these lines of basically this absolutely makes no sense. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no logic to this. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense. And the people that wrote these laws, they know that it doesn't make sense. I want to urge you to step back and take a look at the bigger picture here and fight against that rather than directing your energy towards being outraged at the fine, small detail. Well, they're not small details. They're shocking details. But, you know, don't let that outrage distract you because, yes, you're right. These abortion laws are unconstitutional. They're ridiculous. No, they can't imprison people for life for having a miscarriage. And no, they can't enforce the state laws for actions that people take outside of that state. They wrote these laws as unconstitutional on purpose, and they never expected them to actually go into effect. Why? Because instead, they expected to be sued because all these laws are unconstitutional. And the ACLU has already announced that they filed lawsuits, and I'm sure there are more to come. And these court cases are the conservatives' means to bring this to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. That is their end game here. The end game isn't to be just, you know, an anti-abortion state with absolutely ridiculous laws. Their aim is to make abortion illegal in every single state in the U.S. How the hell did we get here? You know, things were going pretty good like a few years ago. Well, yeah, we elected Trump. Thank you largely to white women. And look at the numbers. That's not deniable. And he appointed Neil Gorsuch, Uh, and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Now we're at a 5-4 conservative majority. And he's already eyeing the next appointee, who of course is conservative and very anti-pro-choice. And please put Ruth Bader Ginsburg in some sort of protective bubble because I'm fucking scared. So while it's completely understandable that you are angry that someone could get the death penalty in some states for aborting, know that that's not the focus. The focus is them passing purposeful, unconstitutional laws to shut it all down. I listened this week to an episode of The Daily Podcast. It's titled A Direct Challenge to Roe versus Wade in Alabama. And the episode description reads, the man who wrote the law knew it was unconstitutional and did it anyway. We asked him why. Guess, Eric Johnston, a lawyer in Alabama who has spent more than 30 years trying to ban abortion. This episode is incredibly eye-opening regarding the history of the GOP working to overturn Roe versus Wade and what's coming next. I highly suggest you listen to it, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's short. It's about a half hour. Listen to it. So, okay, the end game is to make abortion illegal across the nation 
because they feel life is sacred? Is that why they're doing it? No. Okay, zoom out even more because there's an even bigger picture that we're not seeing that's right before our very eyes. This is a way to criminalize the poor. It's a way to keep people trapped in poverty for generations. You know, let's face it, if you have money, no matter what the law says about abortion, you're always going to be able to access abortion if you need to. It's the low-income people, which are often people of color, that's, that are going to suffer here. You've seen the documentary, 13th, and if you haven't, go watch it. I'll put the link in the show notes. You know, slavery was replaced by the prison industrial system, which if things are going the way they're going, hopefully they're not, knock on wood, that might be replaced by a country whose most marginalized don't have access to family planning and reproductive control. So there's a pattern here. There's definitely a pattern. This is about controlling women and people that give birth. It's about controlling the marginalized. It's about controlling the poor. It's about controlling black and brown folks. It's not about life. This movement is not pro-life. You know, how is not providing a livable wage to people? Look at what our minimum wage is. It's ridiculous. How is that pro-life? How is cutting supplemental food assistance or drug testing parents before you'll allow their children to eat? How is that pro-life? How is restricting health care so it's only afforded by the wealthy pro-life? How is cutting social programs pro-life? The end game here is upholding the status quo. It's keeping the wealthy financially secure and keeping them financially secure off the backs of the poor and even the middle class folks, you know, keeping the powerful in power and upholding patriarchal white supremacy. So, oh shit, that's a fucking lot. That's more than just like, oh, I believe God did it. There's more to the story, whether everyone who's pro-life really realizes that or not. So keep all of this in mind when you listen to this guest conversation that I'm about to have with Bianca Loriano. I also want to point out an important fact. These laws are not in effect yet. So contrary to what you're seeing on social media, the abortion laws in all of these states have not yet changed. So it's really important that pregnant people know that and that, you know, we don't want the news to affect the care that they're seeking or prevent them from seeking the care that they need right now. So with that said, I want to tell you about Bianca. Bianca Loriano is an award-winning sexuality educator and curriculum writer. She's the foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network and Anti-Up, a virtual professional development freedom school for justice workers. She's written several curricula, including What's the Real Deal About Love and Solidarity, Communication Mixtape, Speak On It, Volume 1, and has contributed to the OWL 2017 update for high school participants. She also wrote the Sexual and Reproductive Justice Discussion Guide for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. She is offering an anti-up certification, which focuses on justice frameworks and implementation. Bianca has also served as an abortion doula and has extensive background in reproductive justice. She's also offering a course, by the way. It's open to anyone, but it's geared towards sexuality professionals that will also provide you with ASECT continuing education credits. Now, I'm going to have the link to that in our show notes for episode 90. And listeners, if you're interested in that course, you can get it for 20% off 
with the code ANTIUP, that's A-N-T-E-U-P. So our conversation is quite an important one, and it's very timely considering what's happening in our country right now. During the conversation, Bianca helps us understand varying state laws, including what parental consent and approval is all about, waiting period laws, and also understanding what goes into an abortion procedure and how to provide care for those going through it. We discuss the differences between the reproductive rights movement, the reproductive justice movement, and the reproductive health movement, Uh, different ways lawmakers have tried to chip away access to abortion and quality reproductive care in the past, the exclusionary harmful language of the reproductive rights movement, and the propaganda of partial birth abortion. There's a whole lot here. But before we get to Bianca's conversation, you know what time it is. It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. Big shout out to the folks that joined our Patreon family this week. Huge welcome and heartfelt appreciation to Rebecca and Amberly for becoming American Sex Podcast Patreon supporters this week. We appreciate you so much, and we really couldn't do this podcast without you. Your support allows us to just create and give what we create to anyone and everyone who needs to hear these valuable conversations about sexuality and sexual freedom. So thank you. And listeners, if you're curious about Patreon, you can find out more about membership at patreon.com slash American sex. Not only does your membership help support this show, you get cool stuff too, like bonus stories from our guests, extra full-length episodes, American Sex podcast stickers, video greetings, random surprises in the mail, and a whole bunch more. All right, American fuckers, here's my conversation with Bianca Loriano. I am really excited because we have on the line Bianca Loriano, whose work I've admired for a long time, and I have been just waiting for an excuse to talk to her. And I'm I'm really excited. I'm not excited for the reason, because there's some shit going on in our country that's pretty bad. So uh, hi, Bianca. Hi, how are you? Oh, good, good. So yeah, we have had a really rough few weeks in the news concerning reproductive rights. There's the, you know, the new law in Ohio, the new law in Georgia, there's talk of other states. What exactly is is going on? Yeah, you know, um, so abortion is a really hot topic. And people know it as one of two things, either it's you know, choosing when you want to create a family or people who identify as anti-choice, people who want to limit our opportunities to decide when we want to create a family. So, you know, what's been going on since Roe v. Wade was passed uh, by the Supreme Court that's granting privacy for people to do what they need to do with their physicians, mm-hmm. as well as, as Justice Ginsburg has articulated over the past decades, it puts women at the same space as men. And it's a very outdated language because, you know, as we were going to talk today, I won't use those languages of man, woman, mother. But it's really been one of those uh, Supreme Court decisions that has really brought this conversation around gender equity um, mm-hmm. to the surface. And yet here we still are <laughs> where there have been a couple of states um, under the current presidency that is very conservative that are promoting additional more conservative abortion laws per state. So every state has its own specific um, laws that impact what people can do 
with their physician uh, regarding when they want to be a parent. And so what we're seeing now in like Georgia, Ohio, places like Louisiana are a lot more strict um, proposals for those abortion laws. So when I say a lot more strict, what I mean is, yes, Roe v. Wade offered the legal right to choose to terminate a pregnancy because when a pregnant person is pregnant, they have three options. They can carry determine parent, they can carry determine adopt, or they can terminate the pregnancy. And so in the United States, all three options are legal. And of course, mm-hmm. some options are easier than others um, for the for individual people for a variety of different reasons. Um, so what we're seeing happening is strengthening the attempts to chip away at that constitutional right, not just to privacy, but also to body autonomy. And mm-hmm. so in those three states, specifically like Georgia, Ohio, and Louisiana, they already have very strict abortion laws. So they have some of the most strictest, which already includes parental notification for people who are under 18 or parental consent. So those are two different things where a young person might need to get a parent's approval or notify their parent that they're going to choose to terminate a pregnancy, which already causes challenges for a young person who may not be able to talk to a parent or who may be a quote unquote ward of the state. So the state mm-hmm. that they're living in is their parents. Um, and that's just really hard. It's kind of like getting a permission slip signed if it's that kind of um, situation. And, you know, it's difficult to get the state to sign per- permission for you if you don't have, if the state is just putting you in like a group home. Um, right. There's also state laws around how long or how far along in a pregnancy a pregnant person can terminate. So um, that goes for up to 24 weeks in the United States, in many states. And there's just two states that go into late-term abortions, which I'm happy to talk about as well. And there's just two states in the country that do that. But it's according to what's considered last normal menstrual period, Mm -hmm. uh, which is already complicated because nobody has a normal (laughs) menstrual period. Right, right. (laughs) And I I think for people who either, you know, don't have periods and can't, you know, don't have children or people who've never been in the position to calculate what their gestational period is, Mm -hmm. do not realize that by the time you realize that you are pregnant, Mm -hmm. you're already considered, you know, four weeks pregnant, that you're considered, you're considered when you're counting it, you're considered pregnant before you even technically got pregnant. Exactly. So I know like in Ohio and and Georgia where they have these heartbeat bills, mm-hmm. it's 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 what like once you hear the heartbeat which is mm-hmm. is it what, 5 or 6 weeks or something like that. Right. It you know it varies and that's the hard thing with science is because it's not always linear. And so there can be, you know, it's dividing cells that we're talking about mm-hmm. and I don't really know how fast cells divide necessarily. Like it varies in a variety of different situations. And so thinking that like oh at this at 5 weeks, 6 weeks we're going to hear a heartbeat and that equals life is a complicated ethical point of view, but also it's one that we get to hold. And yet it doesn't mean that we have to force our own perspectives onto other people's decisions with their bodies. Um, And so, you know, for me, I usually try to stay away from this conversation of when does life begin? Because it really comes down to values and ethics at the end of the day. And I don't want to change people's minds when it comes to what they want to do. But instead, you know, do what you want to do. It doesn't need to get in anybody else's way 
to do it. They exactly. want to be there. And I think a lot of the people who are promoting these bills don't have that understanding just of bodies, let alone of like the scientific understanding of cells dividing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I know that like when I took high school biology, I don't remember what we talked about really. Um, and I'm sure it's like that for a variety of different people as well who just don't have a science mind. And it's true. You know, if you're someone who doesn't menstruate regularly for a variety of reasons, maybe you're on a birth control option, maybe you're taking different hormones. I mean, there's so many different things that can impact someone's menstrual cycle. The fact that people can be eight or nine weeks pregnant before they realize that they are is really due to not having a quote unquote normal menstrual experience right yeah that would be normal for the person having it you know so some people yeah some people bleed twice a month at different times other people bleed you know it's a variety of different um, experiences for the body and it's a cycle so it's not a cycle that every single body experiences at the same time or in the same way it's individual to each body so it's also an attempt to normalize bodies in a way that just isn't scientifically like possible and also doesn't acknowledge the body diversity that exists just because that's how we're made. Um, Right. So yeah, so those laws attempt to do something that is just not possible. And that's why I think a lot of people, rightfully so, get so incredibly upset because the logic behind it is driven by this particular religious or spiritual belief system connected to this idea of life, which... Mm -hmm. You know, look, we're on a failing planet right now. So I applaud anybody that is a parent and that wants to continue a pregnancy and parent. That's a hard job. It's not one that's for me. And I want people to be able to also choose when, how they want to give birth. And I don't want to see any of my black friends die anymore who are giving birth. Like there's so many complications that come with being pregnant and then giving birth that um, these bills also don't recognize. So a lot of these states also have bills where like, if this happens, you can only get what they consider a therapeutic abortion, which is a a chosen abortion. Um, If you were someone who was raped and survived the rape and became pregnant, or if it was an incest situation, or if your life is in danger, if you carry the pregnancy to term, all of those... (laughs) are so personal and uh, unique experiences rooted in trauma that this is one of the one decisions that I really tell people is the most difficult decision for people to make about their bodies because we don't know what's happened. But if we're putting these specific, you know, um, markers on them that, oh, you can only get it if you've been traumatized in this particular Mm -hmm. way where your self-determination has been taken away, But that's also what these bills are doing, are taking away our ability to find body liberation and choose what's best for us. And so, you know, those kinds of laws, there's also waiting period laws. Like all three of these states um, require people to go to a doctor. You know, you can't call them up and be like, oh, I can come on this day like you can in some states. You know, I'm in California. I've lived in New York where it's been you can get a provider appointment between one or two weeks, depending on what you choose. But in those states, like you really have to plan in advance. In New Orleans, when I lived there, there was only one provider that people could go to. So there's also, yeah, like it's not, it's not a situation where doctors are even trained how to do this in their rotation. So it's a very specialized kind of care that we all need to understand because one, you know, statistics tell us one in three people will experience an abortion in their life. Um, 
that's a lot of us. <laughs> that's, a yeah, whole, it, it is. that's a whole lot of us. And I think sometimes we don't always understand what goes into an abortion procedure. So we don't understand how to provide care to the people that we love that might need it going through those choices. But then also, you know, the waiting period piece the idea is that, okay, you can call, you have to make one appointment. We sit down and we show you all the options that are available to you. We expect you to think about it for a day or two, and then you can make your appointment. And so those are called waiting period laws that really are just another example of how people have tried to chip away at accessing quality care for people who need reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. Um, So yeah, so those are like the three standard things that happen already in a lot of states that are already conservative and have very rigid um, laws around abortion. So the parental consent and notification laws, the waiting period laws, as well as um, laws for young people. And um, there was another one. Okay, see, now I'm forgetting. So this is the part. (laughs) I was going to run down the three, but maybe I'll need to do that. Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it already had seemed before, you know, the, the news hit this week. And of course, these laws have been in the works for a while, especially, you know, Ohio and Georgia. But this week, it seems like when everyone's like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. What's happening? That, A, if you look at the timeline, mm-hmm. you know, most people don't even realize, if you're lucky and you have a very regular menstrual cycle and you're really on the ball and you're like, ultra paranoid, you're not going to do the, well, I'll wait a couple days and see if it comes. Maybe I'm just like, if the day you're late, you take the test and the mm-hmm. test doesn't give you a false negative because you have enough hormones in your <laughs> system for it to test positive. And then you like, you know, rush to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you can make it. Right. But the odds of that happening and all of those stars aligning just perfectly mm-hmm. are next to damn impossible. So mm-hmm. it's like these states are are pretty much outlawing abortion without right. actually saying they're outlawing abortion and mm-hmm. i know in in uh, georgia mm-hmm. the eptoptic pregnancy mm-hmm. thing so yeah. that's when the pregnancy implants in the fallopian tube it doesn't pl- implant in the uterus right. and those pregnancies aren't viable mm-hmm. and th- is it that the lawmakers are saying Kind of like you're a spider plant, like Mm -hmm. you just take the little spider baby and you implant it in the uterus and Mm -hmm. it'll grow there. Do they don't realize, do they not realize bodies don't work this way (laughs) or do they not give a shit and they're purposely passing these impossible laws? Mm -hmm. I I think it's both and (laughs) they also don't care, right? So I think um, this idea that like, oh, we could, you know, quote unquote, save this ectopic pregnancy. It's like, sir, that has never really happened in the history of medicine and gynecology as we understand it, that you can remove an ectopic pregnancy and then have it attach into the uterus. Mm -hmm. That's not what happens. I think a lot of people also don't understand that like a lot of eggs become fertilized in the fallopian tubes and travel down. So like this is a very common thing that happens um, to the body. And yeah, there's... I don't know any physician that really wants to go in to a fallopian tube. I mean, just the the, the future of science and, and the technology that's needed to do that is bananas. And I'm sure we have it, but that's just so expensive. So I think about how an abortion procedure is something that people can instantly experience <laughs> relief from uh, mm-hmm. having a particular medical challenge. And yet it's not the same thing. And so the, the amount of technology and care that's needed 
is completely less for people who are choosing to terminate than people who are having ectopic pregnancy, need to get ultrasounds and RH, you know, injections and all these other things because this law has said, oh, you're pregnant now. And even though this is hurting you, even though this could kill you, even though, you know, our attempts to do this could lead to complications, it's still required. And we're going to use all these resources to allow this dividing cell to be implanted into your uterus that you don't want. You know, it's just such a severe intervention that it really does blow people's minds because that's the kind of stuff that it's like, really, this this is how we want to use our resources, really? This is what we're doing. Yeah, Yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, and then then the fact that if you have a miscarriage Mm -hmm. and they, I don't know if they and how they're determining, you Mm -hmm. know, but if they determine it's your fault, you could go down for murder. Or if you go to another state to get an abortion, that's murder. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's exactly what happens even today, you know, as we have these abortion laws, and as they're legal, and as individual states have their own laws, people still have to travel outside of their state. So if you're someone that's in South Carolina, for example, which goes up to 12 weeks, um, that you can terminate a pregnancy, therapeutically, people usually have to drive to another state because you can't find a provider. If you're 13 weeks, or if you're 14 weeks, I mean, that's already happening right now. We already have people that are driving into Georgia, which goes up to 24 weeks, or other parts of state. So they know exactly how people are able to access that. And yet they don't care about, you know, the people who don't have a car, who need to get on the bus, who need to take, you know, time off their hourly, hourly wage work, who need to get a hotel room, you know, and how this really is impacting people who are already poor and who already are struggling with getting their healthcare met. And so this Mm -hmm. is also a really great example of how people become even more impoverished and go into debt for medical bills, because that's also something that we're seeing because one of the first acts to challenge um, Roe v. Wade was called the Hyde Amendment, which is still very much present. And it basically, in short, like it's a whole thing, but in short, um, it basically says that Medicaid and Medi- Medicaid funds cannot be used to pay for abortion procedures. And, you know, the first person that died because of that was a woman who was pregnant and she was Mexican and living in uh, Texas. And her name's Rosie Jimenez. She was the first person who died because she couldn't afford a, an abortion procedure. And she chose wow. to have a um, quote unquote illegal abortion and she died because of it. And so that's what we mean by quality care. Um, you know, she has a daughter that's, around our age as well. And I just think about the sacrifice that she made as a five-year-old daughter growing up in a world where her mother wasn't able to choose what she wanted to do. Um, Yeah. And I just really connect with Rosie because she was an educator. She was in school. She was going to college and she was going to graduate in five months. I mean, all of this really being, it impacts people's lives so intimately and also so severely. It's a ripple effect. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. impact one person. It impacts communities. Um, Well, you know, one thing you were saying too is that, you know, you said you're sick of seeing black women dying. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the vocal people that I hear and Mm -hmm. see on social media tend to be white feminists. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole piece that's missing here is that and you you just touched on it in what you were saying mm-hmm. briefly is that communities of color and pregnant people of color are being disproportionately affected mm-hmm. by this. So how how does that impact 
pregnant people of color mm-hmm. even more so because you know the 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 um uh, there was just a, a public service announcement mm-hmm. that I saw going around on Instagram mm-hmm. that women of color, people of color who are pregnant are dying at much larger rates of in childbirth mm-hmm. than anybody else. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, you know, that's where it's really great to see the movement happening around uh, supporting and protecting Black mothers who are choosing to carry a pregnancy-determined parent. And so what we've been seeing is an increased rate of doctors and physicians and, and GYNs not believing Black women when they come into the hospital and are giving birth. And, you know, we saw this with Serena Williams sharing her experience with the blood oh, clot. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, Serena Williams the greatest athlete of all time, in my opinion. And yeah. she, she almost you, died. You know she's got the money, she's got the insurance, she's <laughs> right, got, and exactly. she's still, yeah. yeah. And she's someone who knows her body in a way that I probably don't know mine. You know, she has focused on her body being something that allows her to live the life and have the career that she has. And so, of course, she knows when something's wrong. And the fact that doctors didn't believe her and that she really had to advocate for herself while she was in pain, while she had a new pain from just giving birth, while, you know, I've never given birth, so I don't know what kind of euphoria or trauma or whatever might happen during that procedure. Um, But, you know, experiencing all of that and then still having to say, someone check me out, because I'm something's not right. That's mm-hmm. something that happens all the time, not just to black women, but women all the time. Often people who are seen as feminine presenting or having a uterus and reproductive organs that fall in line with sex assigned at birth being female are often not believed around what they're experiencing. And there's so much research on that. And we now see it when we put this into like an intersectional lens where we center Black women's experiences and we see how they're moving through the power dynamics of institutionalization. Because going to the hospital, the hospital is an institution. And so the way that doctors have been trained and the ways that their own implicit bias comes into the care that they offer is showing up in the number of women who have died during childbirth. And Mm -hmm. many of them have people who witnessed that happening while they were in the delivery room. So we have, you know, accounts of parents, of partners, of siblings who witnessed the pregnant person they care for saying, this hurts or this doesn't feel right or I can't breathe or, you know, we have those kinds of accounts already um, in news stories about those kinds of deaths and probably in the past three years have there's been a, a larger reproductive justice movement where organizations have partnered, for example, Sister Song in Georgia, who mm-hmm. have been doing a lot of legislative work with public policy and voting, um, where they are saying, look, this needs to stop. We need to figure out why people are allowing their implicit bias and their misogyny to allow death to happen. And you know, when I do my trainings, I talk to people about that and they have a hard time understanding that that's how racism works. I usually tell them, you know, think about all the accounts that we know about um, when it came to a time in this country where African people were enslaved. We knew that those African people were expected to procreate. And we know that some of those people died. And also we know that this country knows how to keep people alive when they're in a chattel slavery situation. But when it comes to people having body autonomy, 
body liberation, self-determination, this country does not know how to keep those people alive. And so it really is an interesting take on what is going on and how do we see this racism showing up in a very particular way. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's been happening for years and years. And uh, recently, especially with like Say Her Name with Sandra Bland, this idea of like, oh, she killed herself and people saying, you know, we don't think that she did. We're also seeing a movement wanting to focus on supporting black mothers and making sure that if there is a black person that is giving birth, they are not just mothers, but they are also a person whose life is valuable and they should be able to get all the care that they need and not leave the hospital dead. Um, That to me is a very simple expectation. It's a very, very basic request, not leaving the hospital dead. Exactly. OMGYes.com is a website about women's sexual pleasure. There's so many myths out there when it comes to actual ways people with vulvas touch themselves or the way partners touch them. OMG Yes decided to once and for all separate myth from fact. They conducted the first ever large-scale scientific research interviewing over 20,000 vagina owners ages 18 to 95 about what actually feels good and why. What they found was, well, of course, individual preferences vary, but there's also lots of shared techniques, kind of like ingredients people combine in different ways for more pleasure and better orgasms. The site has short videos of women sharing and showing these techniques. Yes, it's explicit, but the videos are comfortable, like friends sharing recipes or travel tips. Season two just came out, and it's all about penetration and the ways people make penetration more pleasurable. I was just watching a series of videos on shallow penetration, how we don't take time exploring the first inch or so of the vagina, you know, the part that's surrounded by the clitoral legs and bulbs that are part of the internal clitoral structure. Well, there's a bunch of videos on how to pleasure that specific part of the vagina, and that taught me a few things. OMG Yes is not a subscription site. You pay once for permanent access to a set of videos and animations, and your payment goes on to fund ongoing research into sexual pleasure. Check out the newly released Season 2 at omgyes.com slash sunny, that's S-U-N-N-Y, and get $5 off. Yes, again, that's omgyes.com slash sunny. So you had mentioned something at the beginning of our conversation. Um, you said something about about gender. Mm-hmm. And I have been seeing some people, again, I spend too much time on social media. Everything is like, <laughs> I saw on Twitter once, um, but I did, uh, that, you know, a lot of people who are very vocal about what's going on with reproductive rights, especially as of late, it's, you know, all over my timeline is mm-hmm. women, 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 mm-hmm. women, women. And, you know, some people are like, hey, you know, tap, 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 hey, mm-hmm. you know, you're leaving trans people and gender nonconforming people and intersex people and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot, people who are not cis women out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And then I hear some people go, you know what, we're just fighting for reproductive rights, like, don't split hairs here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so what's your take on that? How do we be more inclusive, Mm -hmm. and still get our point across about what's happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, language is so important to these conversations. And as someone, you know, who's lived long enough that I've seen language shift and change, and I've had my own struggles with it. And I've come to a space where I'm like, all right, 
go with the flow, follow what people are doing and choose the language that fits best for you. But I think in this situation, when we're talking about our entire U.S. society, the communities that live here, it's really important to acknowledge just basic things. I think a lot of people in the reproductive rights movement, which is different from the reproductive justice movement. um, Wait, wait, how are they different? So uh, there's three different, so there's reproductive rights, there's reproductive health, and there's reproductive justice. And Mm -hmm. so reproductive health is about like the doctors and the doulas and the midwives and people who actually do the work to do like the testing and the care, things that actually connect to the actual health that's connected to reproductive systems. So it can be Mm -hmm. a variety of different things. So it can be everything from like Viagra to epidurals and everything in between. Okay. You then have reproductive rights, which is more on the public policy end, where we're looking at laws, we're trying to shift um, the laws, which is a majority of what we've been talking about, around allowing people to be able to find what they need and get what they need. And then you have reproductive justice, which really collapses both of those communities, but it also takes the communities that are most impacted and sees them as the experts and say, you know what, these individuals are going to be the ones that guide us to understand what reproductive health needs there are and what kind of reproductive rights we need to advocate for or shift or change. And so there are three different um, approaches and reproductive justice is the one that centers the people uh, and that, I think, is where the, the butting of heads comes in for people who are on the reproductive rights end primarily, because they are going to stick to the language of the of the land, right, which is already binary, which is already very non-inclusive, very racist, all the isms. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're going to then see right now is like that rub where people are like, actually, can you use a different term or can you be more inclusive? Uh, we saw this early on when people who are pregnant were like, stop calling me a mother. Like, I am just a pregnant person. (laughs) Like, I do not claim this identity. I do not want this identity. I became pregnant and I do not see myself as a mother. That is not a role that I have. That's not an identity that I have. And so that being real, because there are people who even carry a pregnancy to term and parent or choose adoption or parent, and they still don't identify as a mother. So just even those small shifts around how we discuss the people who created a baby is also or even a fetus or dividing cells right those are the way cell blob right exactly (laughs) i mean and even you know people even if there's a child that was carried a term and is here people still say this by mother and father right like those aren't identities that people really have all the time right so that's already exclusionary language and there's been a little bit of a shift from reproductive rights activists in assuaging and you know not assuaging but like coming to a space where they're like okay i get it um and i think that their steps are a little bit uh slower than say like the reproductive justice steps and then you know the reproductive health steps are also going to be slower because doctors don't necessarily always have the time or the interest in wanting to do better in a particular way um so language like mother is harmful um and then you have language that just claims that people are women. That's also not an identity that people have. Yet when people like the legislators or people who are doing public policy work, when they're trying to make changes, they lean on that language that's already in the law. And so since Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been huge in supporting Roe v. Wade and arguing that it puts women in an equal role as men and being able to do what they want to do with their lives and having some kind of equity, that language is really hard for people to divest in 
when it's the one thing that's holding on to what's happening. And it's the right. one thing, you know, if, uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg came out and said, hey, you know, I think that, yes, when I said it in the whatever, 80s, it was very gendered, but now I see blah, blah, blah. Maybe that would shift, but honestly, that shift would take a while. And I think that it's the sex educators like us that are really the first line of information for a lot of people who don't have a background in our field. And so for us as educators and sex professionals to know that language matters and when to use certain language, that's really important. Um, and, you know, it's just about not assuming how people are thinking about uh, their pregnancy. And it's also about not assuming that people are pregnant, right? So some people, for a variety of reasons, might have some disassociation with their bodies. We know that everybody has a problem with their body. You know, like, we love to promote this, like, body positive language. It's really hard work. And a lot of us aren't there yet. And so right. even having language that doesn't honor that experience can also be a challenge. Mm. Um, so being inclusive is is essential in the work that you and I do. And I think in the work that everybody can do. But what I've noticed is that when we push people to change the things that they've been doing for 20 years, they really don't like it. And yet they're the same people who are fighting for change. And so it's almost like our agendas are in line, but because people get hung up on the language, they are just not willing to build cross movement. And mm -hmm. that's a huge problem because when it comes to, you know, I code switch all the time. I grew up in a bilingual home, like language matters. And there are ways that we can still collaborate and support each other. Um, and still use language that uh, is more inclusive. And that has been an experience where people are just, people are really committed to their gender. People really don't want to be challenged when it comes to gender. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that all the time, especially in masculinity and how oh, that's yeah. been manifested. But um, yeah. yeah, so that's like, a, that's a reality that I think is going to be current. And, and also I don't know of any trainings for educators about abortion. You know, I got all of my abortion training by going through very traditional routes of working at the National Abortion Federation 19 years ago of, you know, becoming an abortion doula and actually working in, you know, hospitals and labs with the doctors and being in the room with the client. So my experience is very specific. And I know that that's not an experience that a lot of people have. And yet these are this is information that we need to know about. Um, mm -hmm. Even if we're not talking about abortion, if we're supporting people who are like, oh, I just had a surgical procedure and I can't have anything in my vaginal canal for a week. And I think that now I'm ready for this new vibrator or this new toy. It's really important for us to think and say, oh, well, you know, what's the reason why you can't have anything in your vaginal canal? And if we don't know how abortion can traumatize the cervix and the vaginal canal for a couple of weeks, we're not going to be able to support that person and finding a toy or using a barrier method or a lubrication or whatever that can allow them to heal, right? So it's about understanding what does this individual need as we talk about it, and then also encouraging people to care for their bodies and he allow their bodies to heal in the way that they've been supported Versus jumping very quickly into a sexual activity that might put them at risk for an infection. And that's, right. that's real life. Like there are plenty of people who are sex workers who need abortions. And the primary way that they're doing work might be penetrative intercourse. So supporting them to find what they need 
you know, supporting them to be able to consider, okay, what do I need to do if I'm bleeding for two weeks? You know, that really shifts the way that many of us might do our work. Um, and that's why I think it's really important for educators and sex professionals to understand a little bit more about abortion and abortion care and abortion outcomes, because it really impacts every part of every piece of the work that we're doing um, right. when it comes to education. Right. And you said you don't know of any training for educators, but you, you have a training. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, you do know of one. Just so one. That? Yeah. So what are the, you know, Sunny, you, since you've been following me for a while, you know that like I complain about a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. I don't just want to complain about it. I'm like, okay, here's a solution. Here's a, here's a resource. Um, and so that's what I noticed uh, was happening. And I was like, okay, this is, it's time to offer this abortion course. And so what I'm offering now is like a live four-hour course with me where we do it virtually. And I talk to people in depth about all of what's happening here. So it's not so much a conversation as much as it is like a mini training. Mm-hmm. And that training allows people to leave with, okay, where can I find more information about my state laws? Who do I need to contact to, to you know, organize within the reproductive rights realm? Uh, if I want to donate money, how do I find an abortion fund in my community? Are there abortion funds in my community? Can I start one? You know, all of those things are really um, important pieces to the work that we do, the education that we do, and the activism that we're a part of. Um, So I've created a course to help people in four hours come to understand what all of those pieces are and also understand some of the medical language and terminology that they can then go and research on their own if they want something more in depth and more biological. Um, right, right. So I offer four um, continuing education units through ASACT, which is our membership organization, if that's of interest to people. But also when I created this course, you know, it's been on my mind for two years already. And I've kind of been sitting on the outline and just haven't been promoting it and whatever, life happened. And uh, over the past two weeks, I was like, okay, I need to do this now. And I pulled the outline out and I was like, okay, it's already ready to go. Like I was, you know, I Pull just- Pull that trigger, do it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I did it and I was like, here's what we need to do. And, you know, I know that usually um, people are like, this is really expensive. And I'm like, you're right, it is expensive. And it's also professional development. This is what we need to invest in ourselves and in our communities. And so, yeah, you're paying $200 if you use a special code that Sunny will share with folks. Oh, yeah. And it'll be in the show notes at AmericanSexPodcast.com. <laughs> awesome. So get those continuing education units. Exactly. Get them, get them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, it helps people be able to um, not just do the professional development piece, and expand their own understanding, but also to invest uh, in our communities and in ourselves. So it's not just paying for this continuing education units, but it's also paying for my expertise and the work that I've done and the unpaid labor and all this other stuff that comes with, okay, here's how I failed 10 years ago when I was doing this work, and here's what I've learned, and here's the Mm -hmm. research that I used, right? So I really value being able to talk about my unlearning process and also the ways that I fucked up, like, because that's life. We're all human and we're all going to fuck up. And that's how I learned some of my best lessons. And so being able to support people who are pregnant and in the, in the procedure room with them, you know, I've learned so much about the body, about how people respond, about what people need when they're in that space. Um, and then also understanding what abortion options there are. So not everything is a surgical procedure. There are now, you know, when I was growing up, it was called RU-486 and the abortion pill. Oh, I remember RU-486. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was like all the rage. Yeah. 
and that's like a real option for people today. And you know, that has a different uh, regimen than going in for a first trimester surgical procedure or even a second trimester procedure and then a late term procedure, right? right? Those are all different procedures that have very different regimens and plans for how to implement them um, successfully. But then also, they also have different potential health outcomes. So, you know, many abortion procedures, the health outcome is the termination of the pregnancy. And that's the thing that people want. Sometimes there can be an affection. Sometimes there can be a perforation of the uterus. But being able to be clear with people about when that happens, what the likelihood is of that, what the healing process is when it comes to that, it doesn't have to be a scare tactic that many people who are anti-choice use right. um, to promote people and encouraging them not to pursue an abortion. We also talk about crisis pregnancy centers because there are laws about crisis pregnancy centers, which will set up shop right across the street oh, yeah. from a health yeah from a health center mm-hmm. and just dissuade potential um, clients into convincing them to carry a pregnancy to term. And so, you know, just the propaganda alone, whether it's good or it's bad, that's something that I really hope people can leave the course understanding as well as the language and what's going on currently and then what power they have as an educator and a community member to work within and around the topic of abortion. Um, Right. It's also So this class is four CEs, four hours. All my classes are. um, I've created a certificate program because, again, I was like, we're not getting what we need in this field. So um, I created a certificate program that's 10 courses. Uh, The abortion class is one of them that focuses on justice frameworks. So how, you know, we hear so much about like intersectionality and as someone who is trained. It's such a buzzword now. (laughs) Everyone's like, I am an intersectional feminist. Right. (laughs) Right. We don't even know what it means. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, you don't know what that word means when you use it. Um, You know, and as someone who is trained in a particular field of women's studies, which had a very different conversation about intersectionality at the same time that Kimberly Crenshaw was emerging. It's very interesting, but also I know that like none, no human sexuality program certificate or higher education program or whatever has a conversation about intersectionality because people have not been trained in how to do it. And so I have a course on it where I want people to understand here's the origins of this theory. Here's how it became a framework and here's what it could look like in practice and analyzing dimensions of power. Um, so I've created courses to understand those frameworks, but then also to put them into practice because that's something I think is missing. And one of the reasons why we keep messing up in our field in the same old school ways, um, because we don't have this type of supporter training. So mm-hmm. I've created a, a justice certificate program um, for people who really want to step up and learn more about like reproductive justice, disability justice, what does fat liberation look like? And really connect that to a sexuality focus. Now, there's one thing I saw that mm-hmm. th- it was something about one of the courses that you offer, mm-hmm. one of the sections or whatever, mm-hmm. is on R. Kelly. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? Like, uh, we had an episode of American Sex, uh, Dirty Lola. Mm-hmm. And I it turned out to just be a conversation. And it was going to be a casual conversation between the both of us. And mm-hmm. we were like, holy shit, this is an episode. Right. <laughs> um, so tell me about that. Because that really, like, that piqued my interest. Yeah. So, um at the beginning of the year, when the Surviving Art Kelly docuseries was released on Lifetime Television, um, you know, I knew it was coming. It had been promoted for a while. But also, like, I grew up during the R. Kelly 
you know, come up. Like that mm-hmm. was my uh, childhood as well. Like I loved Aaliyah and I was one of those young girls who was like, oh, she married R. Kelly. She's so lucky. Right. Like I just didn't have an understanding of mm-hmm. why this was an Not- issue of power. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know anybody else that probably did too at the time. And I think, you know, I talked with one of my friends, Jerome, when I went to visit DC uh, last week. And he was like, I feel like this is the the fault of our generation. Like we didn't, you know, identify that as an issue. And now we're dealing with it 20 years later in such a grand way. Um, And I was like, that's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I mean, if I was definitely one of those young people and I changed my perspective over understanding what's happening in the world and living my own life and asking questions differently, I realized, okay, there's a lot of us who are now responsible for youth groups or who are creating um, grant opportunities or offering money to different organizations that have no idea what kind of curriculum is needed to really talk about these things. And I fear that conversations about grooming really are going to become a buzzword in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Because we don't complicate what the grooming looks like. Because at the end of the day, it looks like socialization that we all experience. Um, and, you know, who doesn't like to be told, you know, I really like spending time with you. I'm having such a good time. Like that can also look like what grooming is for right. for people in so many different ways. And I think that's a really important piece that needs to be um, focused on. And so... When the film came out and there was just silence in the community, you know, I was like, what the heck is going on? Mm-hmm. Why is everybody so fucking quiet? Like, I know there's plenty of people in Chicago doing this work. What's happening? Um, yeah. What support do people need? What resources are you using? And it was really, I, I think people might be stunned or just not know what to do. And so I started writing. I was like, okay, the thing that I do is I create. So I started writing lesson plans about power writing lesson plans about what grooming could look like. How do you talk to young people about, you know, creating relationships, not just ones that are about friendship, but also how do you get to decide what you want your sexual relationships to look like at 16? Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's a shift that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, but it's the world that we live in right now. It's so important. It's, it's the foundation of everything. I mean, to me, that needs to be the foundation of sex ed mm-hmm. for teens and young people mm-hmm. is those developing relationships. Sure, we can learn about fallopian tubes and, right. you know, the, the production of sperm, but mm-hmm. it that's the basis of what either can enhance our lives mm-hmm. or make our lives pretty shitty if we don't understand those things. Yeah, exactly. And it impacts all of us. That's the other thing. Like, this isn't just like a black issue. It's not just about black girls. Like, yes, it does center black girls but if for people who haven't seen um the series i would encourage them to check it out because what you end up realizing is that there was a system that he created of people who supported him in targeting young black girls and who helped maintain that and systems include people and what does it look like when you're one of those people who's caught up in those systems because you're just into celebrity and you want to be close to a particular kind of power or because you have this idea of wealth and this person has some in your idea of what wealth looks like. There's so many things that happen that I think adults play a role in that we don't really have the time or take the time out to understand a little bit better Mm -hmm. about who we are also as people, because I think that there's an allure, you know, when I hear the parents who, you know, whose daughters went to work with him and they were like, we trusted him and that trust 
it's very similar to the trust that the young girls have as well, right? And where does that trust come from? From this idea that like, maybe we know a celebrity because they're a celebrity, you know, where it, where is the fault lines or not really the fault lines, but where is the, the gray area where it comes to a point of, Oh, here's a celebrity versus do I know this person? Right. Um, because we don't know people who are celebrities, you know, I would love to like have, you know, coffee with Beyonce, but I'm not just going to roll up anywhere, you know, like just thinking, right. like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's real out there. <laughs> and yeah. It doesn't mean that I know her, you know, she is a mother of three children. I don't know what that life is like. So, you know, it's just, it doesn't mean just cause someone's famous doesn't mean that they are someone that you can automatically trust. Um, right. And it's it's just like life. And those are some of the the key uh, conversations that I know a lot of parents want to have with their children, especially when they're younger, around like who you can trust, who you go to when you need help, you know, good touch, secret touch, whatever kind of touch. I mean, those are essential conversations to have when children are young and yet we don't do it. And so here we are <laughs> and, you know, I'm working on this curriculum and it's exhausting because it really is a lot of my own stuff that comes up. And I'm like, what would 17 year old Bianca need to hear? Um, oh you know? God. Yeah. And the reality is like, like sometimes nobody could have told me anything, <laughs> you know, like that's the hard, you know, everything. Exactly. Like, I remember, you know, <laughs> even young, I was like, don't tell me what to do. And then exactly. I look back and I'm like, shit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know, like, yeah, it's, and it's complicated, right? It was a, tw- it was a different world. Yeah. More or less. But, um, but yeah, like this is what we've inherited. This is what it looks like now. And we we're wildly unprepared for the world right now. And I think it's just about stepping it up and getting prepared. And that's one of the reasons why I called the certificate program, the Annie up certificate program, because we need to be all in with what we're doing. We can't do it half ass. We can't be half steppers. We really have to go all in when we're thinking about what am I trying to do here and how can I prepare myself for it without having to go to school and, you know, go into $20,000 of student loan debt. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that way. And um, I think there's so many options for people. And I love that I'm able to create one of those options that can definitely center people in our communities that are doing radical work and need additional support and people in our communities who are like, look, I'm just learning and I really need uh, the support right now to be able to do the work that I'm doing better. You know, there's two, there are two different kinds of communities, but they definitely have the same agenda and goals. Um, And so it's really important that the work that I do is also accessible. So, you know, when I say that, I think of like the writing level. So, you know, being less than a ninth grade you know, reading comprehension level because I want it to be something that people can implement. And that means it has to be something you can take from the page and turn it into your own language or voice and have it guide you. And so that curriculum I've, I've been working on um, for the past couple of months now, and it's evolving. It's totally not done yet, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I hope that it will be sometime in the fall and ready yeah. for um, release. So Yeah, there's just, I mean, there's so many things (laughs) that need to happen. And um, there's so many curricula already around this topic. But really, they haven't been, they haven't been done when it comes to celebrity, when it comes to blackness, when it comes to, you know, Chicago in its own right should have its own Chicago curriculum. Oh, so, shit. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. And I almost went to, to Kenwood where R. Kelly oh, wow. would pick up his, my best friend went to Kenwood, mm-hmm. you, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, right. that's, a, that's a whole nother episode right there. Exactly. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like, you know, everyone I know is like one degree away from someone. 
right. that's been impacted. So oh, yeah. it's not just over there. It's really yeah. right here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to go back to something. Mm-hmm. Um, you, during our conversation, we we're talking about abortion. A couple of times, you brought up late term abortion. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that I hear all the time. I hear people go like, well, you know, I'm totally pro-choice and everything, mm-hmm. except for late term abortion, mm-hmm. you know, that that's murder. And the, they, they kind of look at it like you can walk into an abortion clinic and order a late term abortion, just mm-hmm. like you could walk into 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. Right. And it's not really like that. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that and explain what late-term abortion is, yeah. how easy or difficult they are to get, when they apply, that mm-hmm. sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, so late-term abortion has always existed. It's not something new that just happened in the past 10 years. It's something that's that communities have been experiencing terminations for generations. You know, like, abortion didn't just come on the scene. Um so and we can get back, you know, talk about that and other resources of what like indigenous communities have done historically. But, um, you know, anti-choice uh, movements, you've probably heard the phrase uh, partial birth abortion. Yeah. And that is a form of propaganda that's used to scare people into thinking that this is something uh, that it's not. What they want you to think a partial birth abortion is, is someone giving birth to a live baby or people, quote unquote, harming a baby and then having uh, the pregnancy go through a labor process. And the reality is the people who experience a late term abortion um, are people who are over 26 weeks uh, pregnant. Um, So that's still, you know, entering the third trimester. But it's also people who have mostly wanted those um, pregnancies, and they wanted to carry the term to to carry the term and parent. And so these are people that might have already had a baby shower. These are people who may have already made a name, you know, this, you know, Pregnancy has already been a part of the family unit. And so sometimes what happens is that there is a variety of different things that can go wrong, which is where that phrase, the miracle of life comes up, because many things can happen that, <laughs> that can go wrong right. uh, in, in vitro. And what I mean by that is a brain not forming, um, you know, the fetus being in pain once certain kinds of sensory organs are created because certain things aren't, certain systems aren't crafted the way that they need to be crafted with like DNA, blah, blah, blah. There's so many different things that can happen. Um, and usually that's what's occurring for someone who's experiencing a partial birth abortion. Mm-hmm. It is rarely, rarely ever a 14 year old girl who had consensual sex and is hiding like, her. like, change my mind. Yeah. Like I'm going to keep it, but I changed my mind. <laughs> right. Like that's what people think. Exactly. <laughs> or, or who are scared and like hiding a pregnancy and really just, no, it's rarely ever that. And usually if it is someone who's choosing a therapeutic abortion and they didn't plan to carry the term, that person usually had some kind of trauma in their life that impacted their ability to also seek care. So living in a state that had rigid, uh, you know, laws, but also where they couldn't access quality care for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they live in a rural area. Maybe they live in an area where the abortion doctor just comes once a week. Like a lot of clinics work like that. And you have a lot of abortion doctors that fly from state to state to state every day doing abortion procedures. And that's the reality of abortion right now. So um, late term abortions only happen in two states. um, And it's Kansas and Denver or Colorado. Um, right. And, you know, you might know of people named George Tiller. Is that me? Is that my microphone? No, I think that was me. Okay. Sorry. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'll start over. Um, you might have heard of doctors such as George Tiller, who was one of the more famous, um, 
late-term abortion providers in Wichita, Kansas, who was murdered at church on a Sunday afternoon during service and while he was giving out programs as an usher. So Mm. he was murdered by an anti-choice radical person who is now incarcerated. Killed by a pro-lifer. Exactly. Which makes a hell of a lot of sense. Right, with a gun, right? Like it wasn't like... And in front of the entire congregation. Um, and so we now are down, you know, like that was an abortion doctor, one of two. Um, and and that really impacted the Wichita uh, clinic in a drastic way. And there's a really beautiful film called After Tiller that people can watch that gives a little bit of information about what abortion providers do um, and also what volunteers can do, as, such as like clinic escorting and such. But um, what ends up happening is for a variety of people, they wanted this pregnancy, they wanted to parent, so they're devastated. And finding out that their you know child to them is in pain, they're not evolving, and if they, they're giving birth, they're going to die. Um, mm-hmm. But also while they're growing, they're also in pain, right? So there's also this connection to ideas of what's happening inside that we don't know about, but we know this is possible um, in certain periods of time. So what ends up happening is it's a long procedure. You know, people have to take off work. They have to travel to those States. They have to get a hotel for at least a week and a half. And Um, it's expensive. It's expensive. Like it's not, yeah, it's not cheap. And you know, that's another thing that comes up with these new laws that are being promoted. It's not just Medicaid would it be able to cover these procedures, but some health insurance companies would have the option of saying, no, we're not going to cover this procedure, which is thousands and thousands of dollars, mm. um, because it is a surgical procedure. And so um, usually what happens is the the pregnant people and their family members who attend get counseling and support by the, um, by the doctor and the physician's team. And then they're also asked if they have any spiritual belief system or practice, because a lot of those doctors have hookups with, you know, different spiritual leaders so that they can have the comfort of their spiritual practice during this really difficult time. But also Mm. because a lot of people, they want to hold their child when that experience happens. They want to be able to have some kind of ceremony, whether it be a burial, whether it be, you know, um, cremation. They want something to connect with their child again because it was always a child for them. And so that's another fee on top of that. And that's a conversation and a detail that's never included and I think is so essential because doctors who do the late term abortions really fucking care. They care in a way that other people have not even imagined. And so mm-hmm. to be able to have a list of like, you know, rabbis and preachers and reverends and just a, and a variety of different people who can support in a spiritual way, that's something that is like radical, <laughs> period. Um, but then to also be able to connect with flights and um, airlines and how you can, you know, transport a body or um, remains. Those are mm-hmm. also part of the care that they offer people in those situations. And so, you know, when people use the term partial birth abortion, they really want it to sound bloody and horrific and like, oh, my gosh, something out of a horror film. But really what it is, is being able to allow the pregnant person to um, make a decision that's best for them and their family to stop the pregnancy from growing. And then they do sometimes go through a labor procedure where they do have to push out uh, the pregnancy. And a lot of people want that experience sometimes. A lot of people value the birthing experience and they do want to hold their child. And that's something that physicians can offer depending on what the diagnosis is of the fetus. 
Um, and that's important. Some people want to take pictures. Like there's so many different things that come into play when it comes to late term procedures that people don't even consider. Um, and that once you share that, people are like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. It's like, right. I know you didn't <laughs> because you have no opportunity. <laughs> right. Like yep, you don't have the opportunity yep. to because nobody's talked to you about abortion. Um, you know, so that's the other piece around the choice piece, like the really hard decision that parents have to make all the time and caring for their children. Um, and that's one of the that's a, it's just a horrific and very traumatizing choice to have to make. Um, right. And right. that's what it looks like uh, today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, for explaining. Because I think a lot of people, that, I mean, you even told me shit that I didn't even consider. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm supposed to be the professional here. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and and thank you for for this entire conversation. I feel a little bit selfish doing this podcast, <laughs> but I don't feel sorry for it because yeah. I, it gives me an excuse to like talk to people mm-hmm. and that who I admire and whose brains are full of wealth of information as yours is. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So for people listening along who, you know, judging by the audience who listens to the podcast, they're already worked up about all this Mm -hmm, bullshit. mm -hmm. But now after listening to you, they're really the hell worked up about all this bullshit. (laughs) So wrapping up, tell Mm -hmm. us what people can do besides like screaming on Twitter, (laughs) which I mean, continue to do it because that Mm -hmm. does do some help. And besides, you know, of course, watching who we're voting for what are some other things that people can do now mm-hmm. to um, work towards reproductive justice and mm-hmm. make sure that we secure people's reproductive rights yeah i would say definitely like if you're on social media it would be super easy to find resources such as the national advocates for pregnant women because these are organizations that are already monitoring um and identifying how pregnant people are being targeted. So this idea that like, oh, it's going to impact pregnant people. Yes, but it already has. A lot of people have already been um, incarcerated and tried and convicted for miscarriages, right? So like we already have this happening and that organization does a really great job of being able to give people information. So if people need a website, that's one great website. Mm-hmm. I would also encourage people to think about um, the National Network of Abortion Funds and find out if their state has an abortion fund. And if not, you know, think about what it would take for you and like 10 of your homies to put in $10 a month for someone in your community that might need the morning after pill or who might need an abortion or whatever it looks like, some pads for the heavy days after their abortion. Um, That is also, you know, the small changes that we can do to really impact communities. And that's really how many of these abortion services and funds were created was because of community collaboration. Um, I also think if people are interested in learning more about the policies, they definitely should get in contact with Sister Song because they will be doing a lot of work in the South. And if you don't live in the South, it's time for you to understand what's happening in the South and figure out your own stereotypes of the South and, you know, unlearn those and then start to think about strategically using your Northerner or Western privilege or whatever it looks like. Um, <laughs> to be able to advocate for uh, what's happening in other parts of the country. Um, You know, you can donate to a variety of different abortion funds, um, but also thinking about, you know, who do you want to be? Are you going to be that trusted adult in a young person's life that's going to be able to sit and tell them, hey, do you have any questions about abortion? Because I'm happy to answer them for you or to be with you when we go online and find them together. Like those are really essential things. that I think young people just rarely ever get the opportunity to hear and have people really 
honor that they are curious and want to know more. And I think mm-hmm. young people are the ones who really don't always get the care that they need, um, but that they also can find so much. You know, the internet is real. And I think it's important that young people know how they can decipher trusted news and also health information versus going to like a crisis pregnancy center and learning about a variety of misinformation and pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think those would be my top three things around, um, you know, educating yourself more and then also being clear about what's possible. Because I know right now, like with the world as it is, sometimes it just feels like, what's the point? We're all going to die. Um, mm-hmm. And it's true. And we're all not dying right this second. And you know, there's still people like the, the small acts that we do today can really impact people. And that's something that I've learned over the course of my career where I'm like, oh, when I posted that tweet about my grief, I didn't think it would impact 20, 20 people. And it did. And people still to this day are like, remember when you posted that tweet three years ago? Um, you know, so things are held on the Internet and they're archived in a particular way. So I think right now is a really important time to also talk about this um, just in general, because it's important to get the anger out. And it's also important to let the anger drive you to do different kinds of work and activism, because that's real. And that's where some passion can really come in for all of us. So I want to honor that anger that people have. (laughs) I rage with you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And there are, you know, we all have different options. Um, And part of the course that I'm, that I'm guiding is also to provide people with resources. You know, what are books that we should be reading about this? What are some media and different types of film that have been created? You know, how can we use net neutrality to our benefit in this country right now while we still have it in a particular way? Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. so those are some of my suggestions for supporting people. And also just figure out what the state laws are where you live. You know, are you living in a, in a state where it's, you know, abortions are only provided up to 12 weeks? You know, are you living in a state where there is a waiting period? Are you living in a state where there's consent laws for young people? Those are important things to know about, too. Awesome. Well, and for those listening along, I'm going to put those links that uh, Bianca mentioned in the show notes for this episode at americansexpodcast.com. And I'm also going to put in the show notes all the links to all your stuff, your social media, your courses, your website. But real quick, I know you're pretty active on Twitter. So Mm -hmm. what's your Twitter for people listening along who just want to go right now and (laughs) see those tweets about grief from three years ago? Where do they go? You go to Latino sexuality. It's all one word. Um, Yeah, L-A-T-I-N-O sexuality. Awesome. Thank you so much. I have, I have learned a lot. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. And uh, maybe we'll talk again, because you've got so much in your brain. (laughs) I would love (laughs) so much. Yes, I would love to love to awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to American sex to keep up with Ken and I will first make sure you watch our TV show sex with Sunny Megatron on Showtime, then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar or hire us for what Well, either for private coaching or to book us to teach at your event or university or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. 
And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.